Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today we have a great show for you. We're going to be talking about breaking down the barriers to diverse talent and building a talent pool from the global south. We're joined by Bijan Nashat, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Atlas Core. They were founded in 2006. They're a nonprofit, they're a social enterprise, and they're a registered 501c3 in the United States. Their fellowship program identifies strong talent and human capital potential from the global south, and indeed from across the world. And they act as a sort of matchmaking service, as it were placing Atlas Core fellows with leading organizations such as Save the Children, SAP, and the Hilton Foundation. We're going to have a great chat today, and without further ado, Bijan, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you so much. I'm a big fan and, and listener. Excellent. Well, it's great to have you on the show. So you're out there in Washington, D.C. I'm here in the U.K., and why don't we start by finding out a little bit about Atlas Core? What's it all about? I joined Atlas Core exactly nine months ago. And in our conversation, I mentioned we had a board meeting last Friday. So for me, it's been a journey of discovering what is Atlas Core, who is Atlas Core, and how do we create a path for the future? And at its core, it's a social enterprise model. We find talent all over the globe. And over the past 15 years in over 115 countries, and we create an opportunity for them to serve in mission-driven organizations in the US. Those are mostly nonprofits, but also corporates. Through a J-1 visa, we do everything around it, the visa process, the onboarding, and the leadership development, coaching, and mentoring. And we place these young professionals in those organizations. We give them that experience together with the host organization. They pay a fee. And then afterwards and during it, we create a community a global community of people who believe in serving others and who will go on to do great things afterwards. Excellent. The way it's been described to me about Atlas Core is about access to diverse talent. Is that a fair assessment of Atlas? Yes. And as I mentioned, it's been an interesting journey because when you come in, and this is my first CEO role, you want to get it right. You want to understand what's at the heart of the organization you're joining. And so I started by doing a listening tour and, and really listening to everyone to get to the heart of what people are telling me, the experiences about what the partners think, what the board thinks, the staff, and most importantly, the people we serve as clients, the host organizations and the fellows and alumni themselves. And after a month of listening, I came away with this metaphor of an iceberg and that iceberg speaks to me because so much of the iceberg is underneath the water. And to me, that is the perfect metaphor for the talent that is not seen, that maybe faces biases in getting access to organizations to create their own career path to make a difference. And at times, they haven't even realized themselves what kind of talent lies within them. So that's, to me, that is the metaphor that I took away from the listening and from the interaction with the people and the partners around Atlas Core. And so you guys are, we could say in some ways, a matchmaker, right? You identify great talent throughout the world, and you're working with organizations based in the U.S. 
who are mainly within international development or quite a big focus on international development. And, um, and you're ma making that match and you're helping them with helping the talent get to the U.S., clear the immigration hurdles and uh, have a fruitful exercise, a great time, be part of an alumni community. H how does it all work? So uh, what's, is it a chicken and egg situation? I mean, do people come up to you, do, do organizations come up to you and say, look, we're looking for talent, give us a hand? Or do talented individuals, wherever they might be in the globe, come up to you and say, oh, I'm looking for an opportunity in international development? That's a great question. So if you ask the, the founder, Scott Beale, uh, who came up with the idea, and, and the idea was based on the principle, talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. He was out there, part of the foreign service, and he realized how many talented young people are there. So they started in 2006 and built it over time through working with embassies, foundation partners, and the U.S. Embassies abroad have a huge network of, of talented young people that are applying for visa. So that helped Atlas Core a lot get the word out through U.S. embassies. But over time, you build a community. We have a community now of over 1,400 alumni. They spread the word. Our foundation and corporate partners spread the word. And of course, we continue to work with U.S. embassies to get the word out. So we've built a real pool of talent, thousands of people who apply every single year. And from those we vet, and I will get to that a bit later because I, this is the crucial part that you need to get right, especially in the future of work and all the leadership qualities that we need to look for. Then we find ways to match them with organizations, give those organizations the access to a selected semi-finalist pool they do the final interviews and pick, and they pay a fee for that talent, for that young person they get. We bring them over, we do the onboarding, and we shepherd them through that path with the organization and stay in close touch with the host organization. Is it a fellowship program? Is that yes. how you? And so uh, the talented individuals going through this, they're Atlas fellows? They are Atlas Core fellows. They receive a stipend, and after they successfully pass through our leadership training and the host organization service, they become part of our alumni community, and we continue to engage them and support them in their global career or local career. And the placements, how, what sort of duration are they? So if somebody is successful and they, they make it to become an Atlas Core Fellow, how long would, that, um, would, would they be with the host organization? It's around a year, but one of our success measures with the J-1 visa, the trainee visa, you can extend. So when host organizations are happy and satisfied, they can come back to us and say, together with the fellow, we would like to extend. So it can go up to 18 months, which is a, a solid experience, right? It's not just a few weeks of exchange. It is actually a trainee experience toward that could be about 18 months. Mm-hmm. Do the individuals need to be within a specific age bracket? We target under 35, and we also require that people have a university degree and two to three years of experience. I looked at our current talent pool, which is, to me, great fun when you go into the database and you actually see the visuals of the global talent you have available. 
the average of our applicants right now that have been vetted as semifinalists is actually around five years. So these are professionals. These are young professionals who want to make the next step in their career and see this as a springboard for what they want to do afterwards, because getting that experience in a U.S. organization and a mission-driven, and a lot of them are prize-winning, great places to work, really helps create that watershed moment for them when they return to their home countries or to a global career. Mm. And the organizations you work with, they are all based in the U.S., or at least have a presence in the U.S., right? They have a presence in the U.S. I think there is an opportunity to rethink that and broaden that because of the impact of the pandemic. And to me, that lies at the core of what the opportunity is right now that I'm trying to lean into with the strategy is that I think we have a change, a revolution in the way we work. And you and I are speaking via Zoom and all of us have worked for two years in all kinds of organizations. We have hired people virtually And most of what we speak about is commuting to the office or not, right? How annoying is my commute? And I want to extend and reframe that debate together with others to say, this opens up opportunities for talented people, regardless of where they are, only based on the talent and the skill that they bring. And that's what I want to lean into together with researchers, together with partners who are already thinking remote virtually first and a hybrid blended environment that will be the future, in my opinion. Now, currently, though, the fellows necessarily physically end up in the U.S. when they successfully get this fellowship, or could they remain wherever they might be in the globe and and uh, conduct their work remotely, entirely remotely? Great question, because you have to imagine an exchange model getting hit by the pandemic What does an organization do when you can't physically get people inside the country? And at the same time, even if it opens up again, many of the countries we source talent from are still on those country lists of no entry. So what we started out doing is, first of all, switch to a blended hybrid model to say, because of all the visa challenges, let's have people start three to four months completely remotely. And only when we're sure that we can bring them over, we initiate that process of actually physically getting them to the US. And the second response was, we need to go virtual. We've proven that we can create community. We can do that virtually too. So the team started a virtual leadership institute, a six to eight month course that brings together people from across the globe virtually does leadership development around develop yourself, others, and lead movements. And I can give you a few examples. I'm so impressed by that. And I'm not pitching here. I'm, I'm genuinely meeting, meeting people from all over the globe who have made connections between Gaza and Namibia, right? People who would otherwise never be in contact with who are creating a global community. And I think that is something we need to lean into If we have managed to create community without people even meeting in person, that is something to lean into and scale. The, the, the global community of your alumni is, um, is, is how, how, how large are they? How, how, what size is that? It's now around 1,400 and it's growing every year. 
because of the virtual leadership institute that we run and the fellowship that we're ramping up again. It's a solid community in over 115 countries. And since you've been running, you know, Atlas Core has been around for more than 15 years. I imagine some of those fellows or alumni are now quite advanced in their careers. They are. And that's the pleasure of doing that listening tour because you get to speak to them one-on-one, the uh, country director of an NGO, the person working in corporate right now in their home country, social entrepreneurs, people who are climate activists, and people who are pursuing a career looking for talent, uh, work for a talent agency themselves. So that gives you a great sense of joy. I do think, though, and this is also my experience from my previous career, if we want diversity and global talent in organizations, we need to be intentional. We need to create those pathways. It doesn't happen just because someone does a fellowship. It has to be a really intentional approach to me helping that pool of talent really get access to those organizations that need to change, not just in the nonprofit sector. Gotcha. And so we've touched a little bit on the on the working model that that you guys embrace and how how long you've been around and how many alumni you have. Um, let's let's pivot a little bit and talk about the um, those host organizations that are that are bringing in these fellows. Who are they? What are they really interested in doing? How do they connect with you? Why do they connect with you? There are around 300 of them we've worked with over the past 15 years, 15, 16 years. And they are large nonprofits such as CARE, Save the Children, the Obama Foundation. So foundations and nonprofits. And then there are corporates as well. For example, we've worked with SAP who are global but have offices in the US. We've had a long-standing relationship with the American Express Foundation, and we are partnering with the Hilton Foundation and other bigger players. And then there are those, I call them boutique, smaller NGOs that may not have the funds, right? And that's where we come in and try to subsidize with our own fundraising. They may not have the funds to pay the fee fully, but we think they create a great work experience for fellows, a traineeship that really gives them growth. And that's why we keep partnering with them. And they're working in a unique space in the US. They have international connections that link back to the home countries where we source from. So that's when you can create some talent journeys for young fellows as well, because they can create the connection to their home countries and regions. And these organizations, both nonprofit, uh, and you mentioned, say, the Children Care, Hilton, SAP, um, and you, you yourself used to be at Save the Children. Yes. You're, you're a senior executive at Save the Children, worth pointing out. How does the fellowship route fit into the, their overall human capital thinking? You know, how do they bring in talent into the organization? Where does the fellowship fit in for them? And um, does it cost them any money? And what's that look like? I really appreciate that you mentioned human capital because it's something that drives everything if you want to make a difference. And many nonprofit organizations are are realizing that if you want talent, if you want diverse talent, if you want to pursue what's right, localization, really decentralizing and giving people the ownership and the leadership to drive the changes in their home countries, you have to start early. 
And so in my previous role in Save the Children, I was leading the technical expertise transformation, which was an attempt or is an attempt to hire experts in the countries that Save the Children works in, rather than having this older model where you have all the expertise in the global north and in the countries in the south, you do the implementing. And that is a real shift for organizations in the nonprofit sector in particular to break through these barriers and biases at times. There are skilled, talented people, and I've met them in my 10 years almost that Save the Children. I've met so many talented people from colleagues in all the countries I've visited. And to break through that barrier to say, we can hire there. You have to start early. You have to be intentional. And you have to create a talent pipeline. Otherwise, you will end up with the people who have been privileged before. That's a very good observation in terms of um, acquiring and nurturing talent that's going to be based in the, the country where you're operating, not necessarily in London, Geneva, or New York. A question for you then, if somebody proves a successful hire, as it were, if somebody's a fellow and they do a great job during that uh, 12-month, 18-month period, do they then possibly stay within the organization? And if so, are there instances where they are actually um, then subsequently based back in the country where they're from? So if I'm thinking, let's take the Hilton Foundation, for instance, it's an international outfit. Um, are there instances where the fellow comes in, uh, does their work in the US, and then uh, goes back to, to their country? So in essence, almost mitigating the risk of there being a brain drain from countries in the global south. And, and well, you see where I'm going with this. I would love to have a longer podcast conversation about the brain drain, uh, uh, the research behind it, and, and the migration conversation in general. I think, first of all, I'm glad you raised that point because my intention is to create a talent journey to create a talent journey for people to come to the head office in the US and be part of a talent pipeline in their home countries or in the global regions that that organization works in. And we're piloting that this summer, hopefully starting in the fall and January with a large federation. And once we've managed to do it, pilot it, do it successfully, I would love to come back and talk more about it I think you have to be intentional about that talent journey and the talent pipeline that you want to build. And that's something I want to bring based on my own experience of being part of a large nonprofit myself and seeing that from the inside. The other part is, I believe that if you vet and recruit the right people with the right potential for those leadership skills, they will end up doing great things regardless of whether they go back to the home countries or whether they end up in a headquarter in a different region. And I think over time, people will make a contribution. I'm an immigrant myself to the US, right? At some point, I might go back to my home country. And in any event, I'm always connected back to Germany in that case. And so I think we need to look at it a bit more fluidly over the course of one's career or life where are the contributions that I'm making? What do I belong to as a community? And how do I make a difference, a positive difference for social change? Now, you, you, you touched on um, some of the things that you want to achieve, that you want to do. 
and also the fact that you have only been in post for nine months. Um, and one of the things you and I were talking about before uh, actually clicking the record button, but even before then, when we were thinking about the nature of today's conversation and what we wanted to achieve, uh, one of the things we, we, we said would be great to do is sort of touch on where you are today, uh, get your insight for where you want to go, and then subsequently, a little bit down the line, bring you back on the show and see how that journey's transpired. Give us, I know you had a board meeting just the other day. Um, and so combined with the fact that you're still fairly new in post and you have some big visions of where you want to go, give us a little bit of a flavor um, for where you want to take things. I think process is really important. And I mentioned to you, I did that listening tour to really understand what is the essence of this organization and listen to experts about the world and how it's changing, the nature of work. And that's what brought me back to the founder of Brack, who once said, small is beautiful, but scale is necessary. I think there are so many challenges right now. The war in Ukraine, the pandemic, recession, right? Hunger and poverty and conflict in many different places. And I believe you have to find a positive vision and get people around a positive vision. And to me, that vision is the opportunities that the impact of the pandemic creates for talent. That's the starting point of what I've heard. And when I listen to people, that's what I see people getting excited about. So how do we create a path to scale what we've done for over 15, 16 years? And I got really inspired by reading the book, Lean Impact by Anmai Chang, where she talks about you as a social enterprise, you have to be sure to create value for your clients. You have to prove your social impact and you have to create a sustainable path to growth and scale. And once I, I was reading that and, you know, in the strategy process, you're struggling to get your thoughts together. You're listening to so many different people. And all of a sudden I was reading those chapters and it was absolutely clear to me how I need to structure this approach and the strategy. And so I've mapped all of our activities to those three areas. And if you don't mind, I'll give you a, a few examples of what we're doing. So create value for clients. We have two clients. We have the fellows, the talent, and then we have the host organizations. And as you rightly said, we're a matchmaker between them, right? That's the social enterprise model of bridging a market gap where talent and, and demand meets. That's where we really want to invest in skills and vetting for the future of work. I believe that the way we will work requires different leadership skills, and I'm not alone in that. And I think we should put people who come from the global south, from the countries that you don't have on your, on your list when you think about leadership studies, those people should be at the center. What are those skills? When you've managed to make it out of South Sudan, you have proven quite some resilience. When you've managed to do, get a degree in Pakistan and you've successfully entered our pool, you have gone through something. You've sh shown leadership. That's what we want to vet for. Emotional intelligence, self-awareness, the ability to see through and manage complexity, empathy. Those things we want to vet for. We're partnering with a leadership research institute at Zurich University. We have changed already our recruitment and vetting approach to 
be really, really good at vetting for those skills for the future of work, those leadership skills. They're sometimes called soft. You can argue whether they should be called soft. I think they're core and key. And then I am driven based on my last 10 years of working in that space to prove impact. And to me, you have to create proof that you're actually making a difference for both, right? For the people that you get into that, for the clients you serve as fellows and for the host organizations. So that's why we are discussing with uh, researchers at Yale and Harvard who are really interested in the future of work and what it means to be a global workforce of talent working from anywhere potentially, how does that impact productivity? But also how can that impact development impact? Because if you make a salary of a, an organization in the US or somewhere else in your home country, that is more development impact than in my 15 years at the World Bank and Save the Children, in most cases we've been able to achieve. So that's what we want to lean into. And then I mentioned to you on the proving a path to growth and scale, we really want to investigate remote opportunities. There are organizations that are completely remote already, Airbnb being one of them, and we've partnered with them over the years. And then the talent journey that we already spoke about to create that flow of talent of organizations that are already international and have their leadership pipeline be infused by the people who are part of our community. Fascinating, really fascinating. I think it was an article, and you and I spoke about this, I think it was an article in the Financial Times written by Simon Cooper, and the heading, the title of it was something along the lines of, if you can do your job anywhere, then someone anywhere can do your job, right? And I think that's uh, that possibly uh, shed some light in, in terms of your thinking of where you might take things going forward. Uh, let me ask you, you touched on identifying the really great talent that is in countries that, without generalizing, many people would think, well, that's not a leadership, uh, that's not where you're going to go for leadership. Uh, you touched on Pakistan, you touched on South Sudan. Put Pakistan aside, but if we're looking at a place like South Sudan, we had on the show a gentleman named Chris Trott, who at the time was the UK ambassador based in Juba in South Sudan. And he he was on the show and he gave us a really good insight into what the state of affairs in South Sudan is. There's a lot of adversity. How do you identify talent and overcome a lot of the hurdles that, uh, that are there administratively speaking that these individuals have to face day in and day out in a personal, professional? So let's look at South Sudan for the sake of it. And how do you identify people uh, who could who could contribute very positively and, um, and take that forward. It's a great example because it's a hard place to live and to succeed in. And at the same time, I think about five or six years ago, Atlas Core had a big batch of fellows from South Sudan. And we, we identified them with the help of the U.S. Embassy and their networks. And then our previous alumni who reach out and spread the word. I think you have to be scrappy, especially in places like this, and just go intentionally and ask for suggestions, reach out, whether it's, you know, social media doesn't always work, whether it's to word of mouth on the ground, whether it's to some of the nonprofits that we work with that have offices there, 
I don't think there is a one size fits all recruitment approach for those places. You have to build on what you already have and be a little bit creative in getting more of that talent. And you're always at risk at missing what's underneath the iceberg. That's always the case. Whether it's in South Sudan, we have a big community in, in Palestine and Gaza as well, and in Russia, which has over the past months become really difficult to engage with and to support. Now, you touched on the vetting that you do for the talent pipeline, these individuals. What about the vetting of the host organizations? It's not just a question of you raise your hand and you say, I want to be a host organization and that's that. They presumably need to pass certain, uh, uh, you know, meet certain thresholds that, you, that you've set. Give us a little bit of insight into how you identify great host organizations and make sure that there isn't, um, um, mitigate risk, let's say. That's a great question. The best host organization is one that has created a great environment for a fellow already. So we have a few that we've worked with over many years who keep on asking us to bring back talented people every single year. The American Red Cross being one of them. What we do in the beginning is we look at some of those lists of great places to work. We, of course, know our sector very well, especially in the nonprofit space. We do a check around the organizations. We also do supervisor training when we make the decision to place. So that's mandatory for the organization to place their supervisors in our training because you have to keep in mind, you're bringing together people from very different cultures and places with, for example, cultural barriers to overcome, language barriers to make sure that everybody speaks English, but you don't always understand everything you're saying based on where you're from and what you've experienced. So we really focus in on making sure the organizations that we end up picking and its supervisors are prepared for the experience. After the vetting you do with both sides of the pipe, right? The, the talent coming in and the host organizations, once the engagement commences and actually comes to a conclusion, do you assess the satisfaction of, of all the parties involved? Like what sort of uh, uh, measurement might you do to ensure that, uh, that expectations are met, exceeded, hopefully? That's the famous net promoter score that we check with everyone. But I believe you need to do that. There's, there's evaluation and then there is monitoring. And you have to do it on a regular basis because when you do the evaluation at the end, which we do, it's usually too late. If something goes wrong, you want to know right away. So that means the partnerships team is in constant conversation with the host organization and the programs team is in constant conversation with the fellow and they do check-ins on a regular basis. Are there any issues? What is it that you require from us in order to support the fellow in their journey through that fellowship? So that's something you do on a regular basis. And then at the end, you get a net promoter score, you get the satisfaction and a rating, both on our leadership trainings, but also on the experience with the host organization. Is that score then something that you use entirely internally within the organization? Or is it something sort of like a like an Uber rating where uh, the driver can see your, your, your rating and, and the passenger can see the driver's rating. I love that metaphor, that example. That is something I would like to work toward. I, you know, I've been in many organizations 
where you collect a lot of data, but whether you really use it for management and for also to pitch, right? To say, here is our score. Here is your score. Shouldn't we work together again? That is something I want to work toward because I think it has a lot of power. And in the nonprofit space, I've seen many times that you do have a lot of data, but you need to move toward more use in order to make decisions, but also in order to win over partners. Great. So that's something you want to work towards, and that's great. Uh, I know we're running out of time. And as we mentioned a little bit earlier, part of the idea here is that you'll give us a little bit of a glimpse of where we want to go and hopefully have you back on the show, let's say, in a couple of years' time and see how that's progressed. Um, if, we're sitting, if, if we could project ourselves to two years from now and we're looking back, what would success look like for that two-year journey? Where, what would you really want to nail down within the next 24 months? Let me take a little step back and then get back to your question. To me, it starts with this breaking down of barriers to diversity for talent. If you and I have experienced, based on my own background, moments in time where you are held back just because of who you are, where people say you don't belong here, to me, that is at the core of why I want to do this work with Atlas Core. And placing a talent pool in front of people from countries that they wouldn't necessarily consider and saying, we've vetted them for the skills. They, they have what it takes. They have the potential. They have the skills in those key areas that you're looking for. And they can work for you remotely, or we can give them that trainee leadership experience to come to your office. If we could build that talent pool based on the changes that we're making to our vetting, based on the products that we're developing to scale, the talent journey and the remote experience, I think we could build a talent pool from the global south, from people all over the globe, and offer that to organizations. And that puts the assets that they bring, rather than they need our help, into the at the core of the, of the offer. And to me, that is something, having worked for 15 years in the development and humanitarian space, that is something that is very core to who I want to be and who I am, to focus on the assets and the talent and potential that people bring, rather than on this previous focus on the need. Correct. Now, before we wrap up, I always like to ask my guests for a key takeaway. And that one thing that they'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to the show, what would that be? I would like to end by sharing an anecdote when the Ukraine war broke out that made me understand what Atlas Core is really about. We have so many Russian alumni. Many of them haven't even met in person because we engage them virtually through our Virtual Leadership Institute. And the day after the, the war broke out, they came together across different time zones they wrote a petition in support of our Ukrainian alumni community. We had to take it down from a website because of the laws that were passed a few days later. And they are still engaging with us how to support each other and how to support others in that community. And so what we did was we brought the global community together in a global call. And you had people from Gaza, Indonesia, Ethiopia, give each other support, offering mental health advice to people who are 
trying to access that community now that relations with Russia, even with the internet, are getting harder and harder. And, and that community where you feel you belong, even though you're from completely different places and backgrounds, that is what's at the core at Atmos Core. And I believe that if you grow that community, it can make a real tangible difference over the coming years and decades. Wonderful. It's been an absolute pleasure hosting in the Do One Better podcast today, Bijan. Thank you so much for your insight and energy, and I wish you continued success. And I look forward to welcoming you back on the show, let's say in about 24 months time or something like that. Thank you so much, Alberto. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Bijan Nashat, Chief Executive Officer of Atlas Core. For information about this episode and more than 150 interviews with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lij.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It's very much appreciated and it helps others to find the show as well. Thanks so much and I'll catch you next week.